Okay, let's begin. So thank you everybody for tuning in again this week. We are continuing our class on Tefillah. And as we've been doing the past couple of weeks, we have been concentrating on the area of Piyutim. And the way we've decided to do this was to go uh, through the era and through the styles of Piyutim by following the personalities. So going from person to person, and trying to, in a shir or two, <clears throat> discuss these paitanim, who they were, where they lived, what kind of effect they had, what kind of styles they introduced. And to get a grip with that information of an understanding of piyut in general, so that we can be better informed about piyut. And, and last week, we discussed the most famous of the early Paitanim, who is Lazar Birabi Kalir. And we discussed the <clears throat> 200 years of investigation that went into figuring out who Lazar Kalir was. This question has been hotly debated for, you know, about a thousand years since Urbainu Tam. Already people were questioning who exactly Lazar Kalir was. And so last week we looked into who this person, who this giant of, of poetry was. And we came to the conclusion that most likely Urbelezer HaKalir lived in Eretz Yisrael somewhere. And most likely he, he lived at the beginning of the 7th century. So in the early 600s. We saw that, and just to remind everyone, we saw a, um, there were two piyutim that sounded like that he was alive during the time of the uh, Arab conquest of Eretz Yisrael in 635, and he also witnessed the Persian conquest in 619 and, and the Byzantine retakeover in 629. Sorry, I think it was 614 to 629. Uh, regardless, it appears that Rebelezer Kalir lived in the early 7th century in Eretz Yisrael. Now, this is all... This was all a good beginning, just to identify the person, the human being, and to figure out who Rebelezer HaKalir was. And in order to fully appreciate Rebelezer HaKalir, and not to turn this into a college course of piyut, it, we're going to try tonight to analyze precisely what the effect he had was on that period of composition, of that period of piyut. And this area of uh, this historical era, so to speak, is generally known as the classical period. In the, in the, in the language of the historians who, who uh, study this period, they call this the classical period of Piyot, because this was the early and finalized, the, the early sophisticated form of Piyot as it appeared as a liturgical tool. Menachem Zulai used to call this the era of the Krova in contradistinction to the era of the Yotzrot, which came a little bit later. And this was because in the classical period, the Paitanim excelled and perfected a form of piyut known as, that we today will often call a kirova. So let's discuss for a little bit the authors of the classical period, specifically those, especially those who were influenced by the Kalir, and how that affected the uh, the various communities as much as we can understand during the 
from the 7th century through roughly the 9th century. So that era between like the 7th century and the 9th century is what I want to focus on tonight. And mostly we're going to look at the personalities, but I also want to look a little bit at what a Kedushta is. What is a, like what is a, a Kerova? Because we can't go too deep into this. It would exhaust any audience, especially over audio. This is really something you have to do in person. You have to show text. You got to demonstrate this. So that would be a little too exhaustive to really do a deep dive into the Krovo today. But we're going to do our best to get an overview of the classical period tonight. And it's really overwhelming when you approach this kind of study. Because when you, when you look at the immense corpus of creative productivity that, that occurred in the classical period of Piyut, it really makes you wonder how much effort, how many hours, days, weeks, months, maybe years of effort were put into writing these liturgical poems and writing these sophisticated, beautiful pieces of religious art. And most of them were forgotten. And as we're going to see tonight through many of these authors, such as, um, let me just admit somebody, one second, into Zoom. So as we're going to see tonight from, from many of these authors and many of these great Paitanim, many of them were lost to time and most of their team fell into deep obscurity only a few hundred years after they passed away. So it really makes you wonder, would they have been so productive or so creative if they would have known that all of their immensely, immensely beautiful artwork would have gone to the wayside? And, and even those that did survive, such as the Calarian poetry, as an example, today there's not much musical accompaniment to them. We've lost most of the melodies and the music. The appreciation for the poetry, the artwork, the architecture is almost completely gone. 99.99% of people have no idea what they're reading. Uh, and I, in particular, I, I would be speaking to the Ashkenazim. And you wonder, is this some sort of tragedy? Like, should we mourn this? Should we mourn the loss of the Pew team? Should we mourn the lack of understanding? It, it's, it's a really interesting question. So it'll divide the traditionalists and the progressives, those who say, you know what, we really, this is what the Ashkenazic and the Italian communities have been doing for a thousand years. More, more than that, we should continue doing it even if we don't understand it and even if we're making mistakes. They're the and there are, there, are, there are the progressives who say we should either omit it or add our own artwork because these times have moved on and we should serve Hashem in our own way. It's a very interesting question. And I want to preface with, that, with this, these questions simply because we're going to be studying a lot of people tonight that, that nobody has heard of, I promise you. <laughs> Not nobody, but very few people have heard of. And a lot of these Paitanim um, have, have been forgotten for almost a thousand years. Most of their work has been forgotten. And learning about them tonight is not going to change your life. Uh, in order to find out more about these people, you would have to go to a library or to a, to a university, uh, ask them for some very specific 1,000 or 800 page uh, textbooks about their lives or about, or about their piyutim, blow the dust off the covers because nobody has opened them, and congratulations, you will be one of maybe a dozen or two dozen people on the planet who study or care deeply about their works, their history, their piyutim, and although there was tremendous beauty in the classical period, but so much of it has been lost that one wonders if this is a historical exercise that we're going to be doing tonight or if we're really going to 
is there something that we can learn from this, something that we could take away? So with those questions in mind, let's, let's continue a little bit. Um, first and foremost, with the effect of Rabbi Lezer HaKalir himself. Rabbi Lezer HaKalir's influence spread far and wide. And we know definitely that he had a strong influence on the minhag of, of the Italians, of the Italian Jews, a strong influence on the customs of the German Jews, of the French Jews, of the Jews in the Balkans, but never in, on the Jews in the Spanish or the Arab territories. Jews who today we would call Sfaradim did not uh, read the piyutim, known as the piyutim of Rebbe Kalir or Yanai HaPaitan, or Yossi ben Yossi Hayatom, most uh, Sfaradim are barely familiar with these names. And the question really is, why? Why is it that Belazar HaKalir's poetry became a fixed part of the liturgy? Not, honestly, not all of the liturgy, but much of it has been deleted, but at least in the Yamim Noraim, at least during the Yamim Tovim, there are many, or the, the four parashiyot, there are many areas where Ashkenazim, or at least Hasidim, will still say what they call today Yaitzras. So the question is exactly why in the world uh, was it only these communities? So there's a bunch of different theories. Some people believe, like El Bogan, that, that the Spanish simply didn't care for them. And honestly, they believed that they didn't like, the, the, either they didn't like the style or they believed that their own, their own compositions were better. They were progressive. They saw the, the works of the, of the classical uh, poets and they simply shrugged and didn't add them to their corpus of liturgy. That, that is one theory, that the Jews in Arab lands and the Jews in the Spanish lands simply did not desire to change their tefillot in accordance with those paitanim. The other theory would be that the Ashkenazim, at least the early Ashkenazic Jews, all hailed from Italy. The Italians themselves hailed from Eretz Israel, and they were upholding their tradition. And the Italian Jews were upholding the tradition of Eretz Israel, like the Egyptian Jews before them. And just like the Egyptian Jews and, and the Italian Jews kept many minhagim of the Talmud Yerushalmi and of the early, or the sorry, the late Amoraic period in Eretz Israel, so too did the Germans after them and the French after them. So that is another theory. And honestly, if one looks at this historically, from a historian's perspective, it would line up with the culture and attitude of the early, of the medieval Ashkenazim. And Ruth Langer once did a, uh, a piece on this called Kalir was a Tana. She, she did, uh, she's a, a professor in, uh, I think, Boston College. And she goes into why the Ashkenazi Rishonim were so tenacious about Minhagim and why they would, would literally go on, on uh, roller coasters of loopholes to try to uphold previous traditions and previous minhagim. For them, tradition was of paramount, paramount importance, so much so that they would really shove halacha to the, to, 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 and bend it as much as they could to uphold tradition. And this seems to be what Rabbeinu Tam was doing. When Rabbeinu Tam penned a famous tshuva to defend the recital of Kalerian poetry and similar types of poetry called uh, Yetzirah or Kravis in the Shemona Esrei. We discussed this a little bit last week, but I'll, I'll just speak about it a little bit more tonight. Benutam was asked about the permissibility of interrupting Shemona Esrei or interrupting Yotzer R with Piyutim. And Benutam launches on a long defense of doing this. And 
his main defense, really, is that he believes that Rabbi Lazar HaKalir was a very early person. We cannot question him. And most likely he was a Tana. And a Tana from Eretz Yisrael could argue on other Tanaim. And even if the Mishnah says not to do X, Y, and Z, and the, the statutory prayers are the way they are, we can lean ourselves on the fact that he is early and that he is a Tana. And we have tradition to lean on that he is an early Tana. And he goes... Uh, almost a little out of character, and he tries to play historian, and he tries to prove from this midrash, that midrash, he says that he heard from his Rebbeim that when Rebbe Lezra Kalir wrote, wrote uh, uh, one of the Piyotim, uh, speaking about the Chayot, a fire enveloped him, he speaks about leg legends about how he became so talented, and which we mentioned last week, the legends of the cake, and all different sorts of, there are different versions of the legend. And... He speaks about perhaps he was Rabbi Lezer ben Shimon, some Rishonim add in, maybe he was Rabbi Lezer ben Arach. And so Safot really goes out of his way to try to say Rabbi Tam. So that Rabbi Tam really goes out of his way to say that Rabbi Lezer HaKalir was a Tana or somebody very early, and therefore saying Krivis or saying Yitzris was, 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 was an important tradition. It should not be changed. And when it comes to even uh, the, uh, a Mishnah which says directly not like that. The Mishnah in Brachot Afyural from Ralph says that meaning that if a bracha is long, you don't make it short. If a bracha is short, you don't make it long. Benutam reinterprets the entire Mishnah to mean something completely different, just in order to, to defend this practice of Yaitzus. So clearly, Benutam and his colleagues felt that it was of. Uh, it was of sacred tradition to uphold this type of liturgical form of prayer. And already a hundred years later, you can tell that not all the Rishonim were on board with him. You see, Rabbi Nutam was very deliberate in what he was doing. He understood the power of his pen. And even if he wasn't 100% sure that Rabbi Lazar HaKalir was a Tana, he knew that by writing Rabbi Lazar HaKalir was a Tana, he could influence people to not question him and to forever retain that tradition that saying Piyotim was, was fine and dandy. And the rush already is quoted by the Torah in Samachet, and the Torah himself argue with Rabbi Tam halachically, and they don't believe that saying Kerovot or Piyotim are a good thing. And the rush already came from Ashkenaz, he was a Talmud of the Maram, and set up shop in Spain because of, uh, for historical reasons. And the, 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 I think it's the tour himself says, He says it specifically. He says it, he says it exactly. Just in order to uphold the tradition. And so you could see that the attitude of the tour, who already lived in Spain, was different than Rabbeinu Tam. So that's so far two theories. A third theory as to why Rabbi Lazar HaKalir, as the poetry of Rabbi Lazar HaKalir and his kin, was not so accepted in the Spanish and the Arab lands is because of the attack of Rabbi Avraham ibn Ezra. Rabbi Avraham ibn Ezra was one of the earlier Rishonim who received a lot of respect from the later Rishonim, such as the Ramban and, and other Rishonim, because simply because of his his stature, his scholarly um, his scholarly stature and his productivity, how many svarim he wrote. Rabbi Avraham ibn Ezra was one of the most highly uh, respected earlier Rishonim, especially as a Bible commentator, as, 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 a, as one of the, the Mefarshim on Tanakh. And Rabbi Abraham ibn Ezra has a pirush on Kohelet. And in Perak Hay, the first pasuk, based on the, the language of the pasuk that says really not to speak in ways that are inappropriate or riddlic, 
he launches on a full-scale attack on the piyutim of Rablazar HaKalir. And I forgot to look up exactly where this is before the Shi'ur, but there was one scholar who, who, who figured out something a little bit funny, that, that Rablazar HaKalir, sorry, that Rabbi Avraham ibn Ezra had lived in, I believe it was Visigothic Spain, before the, the Muslims took over. And when the Muslims took over at first, he was driven out by the, by the violence. And he, he left Spain for Rome at first, and he traveled many places from there. And so he believes that Rabbi Avraham ibn Ezra wrote this attack on the Kalir because he had never been exposed to Kalirian poetry before until he landed in Rome. And he does some dating to figure out that Rabbi Avraham ibn Ezra most likely wrote this Pirush on Kohelet when he, once he got to Rome. And being surprised by the Kalirian poetry he saw in the Beit Knesset, this was probably the catalyst for his uh, polite attack on, the, on Kellerian poetry. And it would also seem, others have speculated, that perhaps he was in contact with Rabbeinu Tam. We know for sure he was in contact, but perhaps he was aware of Rabbeinu Tam's opinions of Rabbi Elazar HaKalir, and he's directly challenging Rabbeinu Tam's opinions of Rabbi Elazar HaKalir. First of all, based on the Pasuk, he says, it is very clear that when we pray to Hashem and we speak to Hashem, or we speak in prayer, we have to do so in lucid, fine terms. And he has four main arguments against the Calarian-style poetry. The first of which is that it uses language which is confusing. It, it confuses the person who is praying because he doesn't really know what he's saying. Second, his second argument is that sometimes it uses word f words from the Gemara, Aramaic words, rather than Lashon HaKodesh. And in Rabbi Avraham Ibn Ezra's opinion, the best language to pray in Lachatchila is Lashon HaKodesh. His third argument is that he uses terrible grammar, and this is something a grammarian would say, like Rabbi Avraham Ibn Ezra. And lastly, that he makes references to the Agadah, which are very imperfect at times. So after all of this, he goes at length, and it's really a, a fun read if you, if you read it. Um, the curious part of all those four questions is that, as we shall see when we get to Rabbi Avraham Ibn Ezra's poetry himself, He's a little bit guilty of each one of these, uh, each one of these accusations, so to speak. So he himself, in his own poetry, is a little bit guilty of all four of these. So it's it's a bit funny that that he does make these accusations. But one of the things he says, which is really uh, unorthodox, is that he says, "Don't tell, bring me uh, a proof, or don't bring me." some support that just because Belezar Khalir lived so early that he's indefensible. We can challenge someone even if he's earlier. That, that's not a defense. And, and don't tell me that just because he was earlier or he might have been a Tana that I can't criticize him. He says, Kulanu, he says, we were all created in the Tselem Elohim. We were all created in the Tselem Elohim. I'm a human being. He was a human being. And I can challenge him. And he, he's, he actually brings the Gemara where the Tanaim themselves, uh, sorry, I think the Amoraim, challenge uh, and, and criticize one of the Nevi'im. And he brings this as a proof. And honestly, this is the kind of behavior that would get you thrown out of a classic yeshiva today because uh, if you challenge a Tana and say, listen, I could criticize a Tana. I'm just like him. I'm a human being. You're going to either get laughed out the door uh, or called a heretic. Most people will consider you a fool for challenging a Tana rather than a heretic. 
But this was the kind of unorthodox thinking that Rabbi Avram ibn Ezra was famous for. And this was something, unfortunately, the Haskalah really harped on. They considered themselves later the Enlightenment in Germany. They really loved Rabbi Avraham ibn Ezra because he was a Rishon of terrific stature, but he had no problem arguing on people early, earlier than him. And they took this as inspiration to argue on people much earlier than them and to take, and to take issue with things that Tanaim said, Amoraim said, even prophets. So... Uh, unfortunately, there has to be a limit to where we take Rabbi Avram Ibn Ezra's arguments about arguing with, with earlier people, but this is part of his criticism against the, the ar- those who argue, like Rabbi Nutam, that Killerian poetry is here to stay. So that is some of the early history that we have, at least some of the discussion regarding Rabbi uh, Elazar Kalir's influence. So just to summarize, we have three theories. Number one, the Sfaradim weren't interested in his poetry. Number two, the Ashkenazim were very interested in his poetry, and they just wanted to uphold their tradition tenaciously. The last theory is that attacks like the attack of Rabbi Avraham ibn Ezra affected Spanish Jews and affected um, Jews in the Arabic lands that Kellerian poetry and its kin are not things that we do around here. Okay, let's move a little further. So. In order to understand what this Kalerian poetry is and what this classical period of poetry represents, we have to understand different forms of piyut. So the earlier forms of piyut come in many different names. So far, we've said the word krova, but there are other ways of describing. We don't know where the word krova comes from exactly. Most likely, it's some sort of word from Syriac or something like that. But there are other words to describe piyut. There are piyutim that are called kedushtot, or kedushtaot, a kedushta in singular. There are shivatot, right? That's, that's, that's another type of piyut. You have shimona esreis, you have, you have yotzrot, and a few other types of piyutim, or specifically different types of components of a piyutim that existed at that time. The most, the most, um, I would say, the most prominent the most prominent of all of the piyutim that was developed in that era was a type of piyut called the Kedushta. And this was started by Yanai Hapaitan. As far as we can tell, we don't have any evidence to the contrary yet. And it was um, developed and perfected by people like Rabbi Lazar HaKalir, mostly by Rabbi Lazar HaKalir, whose corpus uh, goes into the hundreds of piyutim. Now, to explain a little, yotzerot are, technically speaking, a yotzer is any piyut which is written to be put into the yotzer r of, uh, into the brach of yotzer r. A shmona esrei would be something for a piyut which the entire piyut follows every bracha of the shmona esrei. This is for a weekday type of shmona esrei, but a special weekday, uh, some sort of tubishvat uh, or some, some special weekday, Chanukah. A shivatot is for Shabbat and Tov. Any Shemona Esrei that has seven brachot, you would do a special piyut with seven sections. And the Kedushta is a specific type of set of piyutim. Kedushta is not like the Shivatot and like the Kedushta, and like the Shivatot and like the Yotzrot. A Kedushta is not a single poem. A Kedushta means it's a set of poems. So when I say the word Krova, if I say the word Kedushta, I don't mean a single poem. I mean a set of piyutim. This set of piyutim has an architecture, it has a framework, it has a very fixed design for how it works. 
And in the piyutim of Yanai, a kedushtah, as we saw, two, I think it was two weeks ago, Yanai has a nine-part system for exactly how his kedushtah works. Rabbi Lazar Kalir system has roughly seven or eight, sometimes even nine sections to, it depends really how you want to split it up, but let's call it eight or nine components to how the kedushtah is formatted. Meaning that when the poet sat down to write his kedushtah, whoever that poet might have been, whoever that paitan might have been, he understood where he was going to put certain poems. And they call this almost like uh, stations, like by this part of the bracha, we're going to station this poem. By this part of the bracha, we're going to station another poem. And this was all based initially on the, on the Shmon Esrei of Eretz Yisrael. So based on the early Shmon Esrei of Eretz Yisrael, they would take at different stations in that statutory, in that fixed statutory text, they would put different poems. I hope you're, you're still with me at this point. So originally, the, these poems were... Th- meant to really supplant and replace the brachot Shmon Esrei. Let me explain. A Kiddushtah is, is a set of poems which embellishes the first three brachot of Shmona Esrei. So again, a Kiddushtah is not one poem. It is a set of poems, and its function is to embellish the first three brachot of Shmona Esrei. In Eretz Yisrael, where most of these paitanim lived, the, uh, the custom of saying Kiddushah was not to say it every day. They would not have a Kiddushah in the, in the Chazarat shots every day. Rather, they would only say a Kiddushah on Shabbat and Yom Tov. Consequentially, that would mean that the anytime people would do a Kiddushah, it was some sort of occasion. Similarly, by a Yotzer. In Eretz Yisrael, we strongly suspect that they only put a Kiddushah in Yotzer. Like today, we say Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh in every Yotzer or in the morning. They, it seems that they only did that on Shabbat and Moadim. So because they only did this on occasions, therefore, saying a Kiddushah was an occasion which called for some form of embellishment. Now, this Kiddushah, which embellishes the first three brachot, as I said, has a structure. And the structure of it adopts a theme. So you, let's say you have the bones, you have a skeleton for how you're going to do things. And then you paint on it whatever the theme is of that week. So we've already seen that there are themes for every parashah of the week, right? The parashiot, whether it's Bereshit, Noach, Lech, Chavayera, or in the Eretz Yisrael cycle, 155 different parashiot. Or it could be a holiday like Pesach, and you could have themes of Pesach. You could have themes of Sukkot, themes of any holiday. It would be Yami Noraim was especially embellished. And in their time, in Eretz Yisrael, they would take this, this structure and create basically a new three brachot, a new uh, avot, givurot, and kiddushot, right? A new first three brachot. So they would keep the first, the opening, and then they would uh, continue, which by the way was their nusach, then they would have the piyutz, the, 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 let's call it the krovah in the middle, and then they would say, Baruchat Hashem, again, Abraham, they would close it. But they would replace the body of each bracha with a, a set of piyutim. Now, scholars like to divide the kiddushtah, as it were, into three links. They call it chuliot, or vertebrae links, something like that. And these three links, really, 
are complicated. And again, this isn't a college course, so we're not, we're not going to sit down with texts. Uh, there's hundreds of them and, and, and go through these styles. But maybe when we get to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we're going we're gonna to dive into this a little more deeply. The first, the first set, the first link of the, of the three parts, of the three main sections of the Kedushtah contains what's called the Magen, the Mahayet, and the Mishalesh. The Magen is, the, is, is, I think, one, two, two, one or two piyutim plus pesukim to embellish the first bracha called Magen. The second one, the Mechayeh, is a piyut to embellish the, uh, no, sorry, it's one piyut to embellish the Magen, one piyut to, be, to embellish the, the bracha of Mechayeh Metim, and another piyut to, be, to embellish the, bracha, the third bracha of Atah Kadosh, or in their time, Kadosh Atah Ben Orash Mecha. So those, that's the, the first uh, link in the, the first link of the first three parts of a Kedushtah. The second part contains two other putim. One of them is usually freeform. It's a freeform text, but it's going to end with the word Kadosh, just to keep it me'en achatima. And the second uh, poem of that second uh, section is going to have an acrostic poem, whether it's the name of the author or an aleph bet, something like that. But it's different than the first poems because it uses three strophes instead of four. The first, uh, in, in the Magen, you're going to use four, uh, four strophe poems. This one's definitely usually going to use three. Okay, the third section, as I said, there's three links. The third section has something called a rahit and something called a siluk. The rahit is a special type of piyut which follows... Um, uh, songs of the angels and the siluk is something which is supposed to convey the ending and to pass the ending off into something which is similar to the end of Atakadosh and to, to guide you into the Kedusha to, to finish the Khatima Ke'ena Khatima. That's the basic, sim, that's, a, that's the simple understanding of these three links. I'm leaving out some styles, some, some, some innovations. For example, Kalir uh, had some very sophisticated forms of rhyme. Uh, he had sophisticated forms of alliteration. Um, he had sophisticated forms of acrostics. He would he would uh, riddle his words and embellish them with with uh, with midrashim. He would chain certain words together and add which means which means that you're you're going to chain words like v'ha'aretz shafal rumi after the after v'ha'aretz you continue v'ha'aretz shafal rumi or or you might be familiar with koneh takol hakol yoducha v'akol yishabuchucha right a, a chaining effect so Belazar Kalir made many beautiful innovations which were adopted and imitated by later paitanim again not all of them were full innovations he didn't invent rhyme but he did use certain styles of rhyme or acrostic which were much which were very much copied by later Paitani. Today, if you look at an Ashkenaz Machsar, and you open up, you open it up for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, and I don't pray with Rosh. I've never prayed one of these, uh, one of these uh, prayers, but I can tell you from opening one of these Machsarim that um, there are clear mistakes and clear misunderstandings of how Kedushtaot work, and that is because. The way this was designed in Eretz Yisrael and the way it was early, pra- practiced in early times began to get muddled and confused in the Middle Ages. And then in the modern era, it was much more confused. And when the, and when the printing press came along, uh, it was basically messed up. Because think about it. You have Kiddush Ta'ot, where you have these, these fancy piyot structures written in Eretz Yisrael on the basis of the Shemona Esrei of Eretz Yisrael. And then they get transplanted 
to use in other countries where they're using the Shmon Esrei of Bavel, right, the Babylonian Shmon Esrei, which we're familiar with, they have to modify them in order to fit within that framework. And then furthermore, all the languages and all the bridges and the siluks and, and the connections get even further confused. The Rashi Tevot uh, always get confused. Headers get confused. Endings get, get confused. Psukim get confused. And as time goes on, instead of replacements, you have additions. And instead of additions, you have replacements and putting things in the wrong places. It's, it's unbelievable how corrupted, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but uh, how technically corrupted the, the Kiddushta has come from the era of Eretz Yisrael, from the classical period until today. And if anybody is, uh, has two hours, three hours to burn, I would encourage you, there's a, there's a, a periodical called Chitzei Giborim. And in volume 10, and this is available in stores, Chitzei Giborim is an is a orthodox journal of academic scholars. And in Chitzei Giborim, there's an article in volume 10, page 263, I believe, by uh, Rabbi Yaakov Leufer, Rabbi Yaakov Laufer from Eretz Yisrael. And he's alive today, just a very, very smart individual. And he wrote a very a nice explanation of what a Kiddushta is, and he tracks the history for those familiar, like Ashkenazim, if, if you're familiar with what your tefillah looks like in Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, he shows you exactly what happened, uh, so how the Kiddushta was initially designed, and how it got messed up over the next 1,000 years, and how it appears in the Sidurim today. It's really an awesome read. It contains details uh, that are a little academic here and there, but very readable, very enjoyable read. It shows a lot of manuscripts from Germany, where he shows precisely where the, where the scribes messed up. It's, it's terrific fun. So if anyone has time, uh, I would definitely recommend that article. It's also available on Hebrew Books. Uh, you could, you don't have to buy it if you want. You could go to HebrewBooks.org and look up that article. It's a really fun read for those who are who are curious. Okay. Now, as I said tonight, I wanted to focus on the classical period a little bit. I'm going to waver here and there, but let's let's look at a few other Paitanim who were influenced by Elazar Hakalir. So, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago. The earliest sources for these names, like Yanai, Yossi ben Yossi, and Kalir, end up in, we are found in Svarim from Sadia Gaon in Sefer Ha'agron, as well as certain writings of the Karaim, specifically from Al-Kir Kassani. And in those manuscripts where they mention the early Paitanim of the classical period, they mention names like Yossi ben Yossi, uh, Yanai, Lazar Kalir, Shimon, and Pinchas. These are the names they throw out there. Sometimes they say Elazar for Belazar HaKalir. So for many, many, many years, roughly a thousand years, no one has heard of these people. And it's a tragedy, but that's, that, that's the way it was. Until the opening of the Karaganiza in 1896, almost no one had heard of nor had been reciting piyutim of these type or from these authors. Now the Karaganiza revealed many manuscripts that had been in use in early Egypt, and especially the Egyptians who used them in Hagavari Tisrael, and therefore scholars were able to piece together personalities and, and poets who were once famous and prolific and productive, who fell into obscurity a thousand years ago, and no one has read their poetry since, even though some of it is masterful and beautiful and, and, and really like artwork of the highest level, it, it was almost, uh, it, they disappeared into obscurity. So the first, let's talk about Rabbi Pinchas. His full acrostic, the way he spells out his name, is Rabbi Pinchas HaKohen ben Yaakov Mikafra. 
Kafra is a place, uh, the suburb of Tiveria. It's not, it is not clear precisely who he was. He might have been Rabbi Nechas Rosh Shiva, who was one of these uh, heads of the academies in Eretz Yisrael in the 700s. It's not clear if this is who, or, who it was. But it didn't become exactly clear who, or, who he was or when he lived until uh, more recently, I think this was in the 80s, when Professor Shulamit Elitzur wrote an entire book on him, on him. It was one of her shorter books. It's only about 800 pages. Um, and she wrote a book on Rabbi Pinchas HaKohen, the, the piyutim of Rabbi Pinchas HaKohen. And it is clear that he has Kalyrian influence. He basically writes mostly Kedushtas and mostly in the format of Rabbi Elazar HaKalir. The question is, precisely when did he live? So there is a there was a fast, and this, this is something that was discovered from the Geniza. There was a, a minog in Eretz Yisrael, a custom in, 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 in what's called early Palestine, to, to fast every year on the 23rd of Shvat. Why did they fast on this day? Because there was an earthquake, an earthquake that occurred that killed many, many people, scared the living daylights out of the population, and they were so uh, humbled by this tragedy that they instituted to, to fast every year afterwards. And he has a poem for what was called the Tzom Harash, the, the fast of the earthquake. The problem is that there were many earthquakes in the 700s, and precisely when this earthquake was is a little bit tricky to figure out. Luckily, um, when scholars do work in their field and they do it well, uh, it, it, it's, it's easier to reference scholars from other fields. So you have a, you have a, a situation where Paitanim are trying to work with geologists to figure out when an earthquake happened in the 700s, which is kind of fun, but also kind of wild. So there is a writing from a manuscript a lot later, which brings the Pasuk in Chavakuk about this earthquake. And they say... Uh, that the Pasuk says in Chavakuk, You tread the earth in rage and you trample the nations in fury. And this manuscript, this, this writing of a later historian, writes that the Jews said, is the Mount of Years after the Churban in which this earthquake occurred. And if you take the, the, mem, the letter Mem and you take it as the, the number 600, because it's a Mem Sofit, that equals 679 years after the Churban, which comes precisely to the year 749. There is a Christian text which records an earthquake in Yerushalayim on January the 18th, which is also the 23rd of Shvat. So this is a beautiful corroboration to this idea that, it's, that this was the earthquake for which they instituted a fast for, and this was the Tzom Harash in which he was writing for. Again, uh, Elitur, Professor Elitur goes into precisely how that might not be the exact date, maybe it was 750, and, and, and all the, uh, the nuances of that. But it's a fascinating exercise where, where scholars of Jewish, ancient Jewish liturgical poetry are consulting both Christian texts and geologists. I thought that was really, really wild. Now, his piyutim are absolutely masterful. Um, they were not retained in the main prayers, and it is not clear why. Most likely because Rabbi Lazar Kalir's fame and his corpus overshadowed the corpus of so many other poets, and the priority was always to preserve the Kalirs, and his imitators were just not, re not as respected as much. 
and it, it's otherwise not really known uh, why past the past the the tenth or ninth century in Egypt nobody had copies of his Piyutim anymore. Most likely, the name Kalir just you know fielded its popularity. Popularity and and scholars consider. Pinchas HaKohen, the seal, the closer of the of the classical period, because he really his fine his masterworks um, are, are are almost the the pinnacle. Like his and really Kalir is the pinnacle, but his works really demonstrate that type of poetry. Much later, you have imitators like Kilar and and the Clonimus families, which we'll get to. But uh, this was a beautiful a this was one of the beautiful Paitanim who won't affect your life, but Somebody to know about. The other was Rabbi Shimon Bar Migas. He's mm-hmm. often, if you hear the word Shimon HaPaitan, he could be often confused for Rabbi Shimon Bar Yitzchak. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yitzchak was a German uh, poet of the 10th century. And he was a, an imitator of Kalir who filled the corpus for many areas where the Ashkenazim just didn't have Kalir's poems. They didn't know of them. They didn't have Kalir's poems for certain holidays, second day Rosh Hashanah, this or that. So they used the Shimon Bar Yitzchaks, which were also beautiful uh, piyutim, a little bit more complex, they had different, a little bit of a different style, but very much a Kalirian imitator. This is not him. This is not the 10th century poet. Rosh Shimon Bar Migas was most likely a contemporary of Yanai. And he might have lived a little bit after Yanai, but a little bit before the Kalir. And he was re- really discovered recently. Uh, a scholar by the name of Yosef Yahalom published a book in 1984, which goes through his his poetry that was discovered in the Cairo Geniza. It, it might be that he influenced Kalir. If the dating is correct, it might be that Kalir influenced him. So that's another person who was mostly forgotten, mostly uh, obscure and unknown. However, if you're interested, there are... Uh, libraries to go to, and there are uh, obscure academic websites where you can buy these books by Yosef Yehalom or by Shulamit Elitzur, and you can spend 800 pages reading the Piyutim of these early fascinating individuals. If that's your cup of tea, it's a really beautiful exercise. The last one I'll mention is somebody who is known by the name of Haduta, sometimes spelled with a hey, sometimes spelled with a, a het, or Hadutahu. We don't know anything about this person. This person was really mysterious. They were first discovered in the Karaganiza, and it's most likely that this person lived after the time of Rabbi Lezer, uh, Birbi Kalir. Now, the name Haduta, if you say, say it to an American ear, would sound like a woman's name, but we could be f- very safe in assuming that this is a man because for a woman to have that level of scholarship and that level of literacy and capability in the 8th century in Eretz Yisrael is a laughable idea. It is not impossible. It would be extremely rare, but most likely this Haduta person was a man. He is known sometimes as Ribi Haduta, and some scholars believe this was Rabbi Haduta bin Avraham. Other scholars believe that this was a different person named Hadutahu, and this, we're just missing the acrostics, but this was Ribi or a certain person named Chadutahu. And what does the name mean? It might be Aramaic, it might be Syriac, it might be that it means something like Chadash, like like in the Aramaic word for new. It might come from the word Chedva, for joy or gladness, but it is not at all clear. There has not been enough work done on his poetry yet to warrant a full book. There are articles uh, and there are collections of his Kiddushta'ot. One of the most interesting things about his Kiddushta's 
is that he wrote a set of 24 Kedushtas for every Shabbat of the Mishmarot of the Kohanim. So for every family of the 24 Mishmarot of the Kohanim, he wrote whichever one was their week, he would write 24. He wrote 24 different parashi, uh, Kedushtas for every different Shabbat that was their Shabbat. An incredible corpus of work. Uh, but we know nothing about him. We're not clear about his time. It seems that he was inspired by Kalir, so he'd live a little bit after Kalir. But so far, his time, his place has eluded scholars. We have no idea who he was, where he lived, and if possibly, maybe it was a she, but it's very, very, very unlikely. Now, what follows the classical period are going to be the imitators. Next week, we're going to have to look at the first imitators in southern Italy, primarily uh, Amitai ben Shafatia and the Clonimus family. Uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yitzchak in Germany was also very prolific. He also had, he filled in the blanks for the Ashkenazim. And they also, you know, wherever they lacked a clearing poem, they would, they would add one of these compositions from, from many of these later 10th and 11th century imitators of the Kalir. So we might go directly to the imitators. We might have to take a break for Rafsadia Gaon, and that would be a little bit of a different topic because Rafsadia Gaon logically is the next Paitan. Sorry, his, sorry, chronologically, Rafsadia Gaon was the next Paitan. Uh, his style is different than Kalirian poetry. Some of his poems are more similar to, to poems from Yanai, and his life, his legacy, his history, his scholarship, and his poetry are a complete hour or two of discussion of, of their own. So perhaps we'll take a, bl- a break from the classical poetry and we'll discuss Rupsadia next week. Perhaps we will discuss uh, post-classical uh, uh, poetry, Putim. And so Bezat Hashem, thank you everyone for your patience, your endurance. Bezat Hashem will continue next week. I hope everyone learned something tonight. I hope it was interesting in some way. And hopefully it wasn't too obscure. So thanks for your attention and we will continue next week.